My brilliant scientist co-host, Dr. Liz Wayne, is going to be a tenure-track professor. This is a two-part episode. In the first part, I'll be interviewing Liz about the professional aspects of her academic job hunt, her preparation, and then her experience of negotiating her job offer, and all the new things that she learned about being faculty by being for this process. And look out for part two, where we'll tackle the personal aspects of what it means to start a new job that you don't get to hear about very often, which is about how it impacts our relationships with family and dating. This last part can be pretty juicy. Stay tuned and enjoy. And then you're contemplating your worst fears. And they're just fears that just kind of came all of a sudden. And they're, so they're not fears related to um, necessarily... The, they're not the same fears you had while you were applying for the job. Mm-hmm. They're fit, but they're not the same fears. They're new fears that because people only kind of fantasize or they only idealize applying for the job and not what it means to have the job, mm-hmm. you, it's their layer of isolation. Mm-hmm. Because my new fears are things you won't understand or you'll tell me I'm overreacting and it's like, no, this is, this is real. <laughs> And then it's like a, um, and it's just so weird that we can't really train people on this. So Liz, I'm sure your favorite question right now must be, are you excited? I'm thrilled. I'm, I'm speechless, actually. So for our listeners, in case you don't know why I'm asking Liz this question, it's because Liz is going to be a tenure track professor um Yay! yes and you are listening to phd viz uh podcast about academia culture and social justice across the stem humanities divide i'm representing the humanities dr zain yao and i am dr liz wayne representing the stem fields and liz is joining me as a <laughs> hashtag new prof i'm stepping into the the light now i've i've overcome i feel like we should play some like triumphant music right now like this mm-hmm. is like this is the rocky end of the whole lap and like da, 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 da. but at the same time it's like the, the whole sequence where he's going up the those stairs in philadelphia actually oh you get to the top and there's like a dozen like three more flights of stairs let's not yes right and it's like but let's not focus on that yet but there's just yeah exactly that's exactly what this feels like it's really funny how often and how frequently people do this and how knowing how hard it is doesn't help the next set of people going through it mm-hmm. um, the individual feeling process that you i think that's even why the new prof hashtag and the kind of new prof and i'm not not sure if that if the humanities has this but there's like a new pi slack and people kind of join this and just talk about it and okay but perhaps to sort of backtrack a bit, how about you tell our listeners a little bit about the job or the specifics of the job and where it actually is? What departments are you going to be in? Oh, that's, that's a great question. Yeah, that's, that's actually like a really important question, um, especially for people who might want to work in my lab because I'll be hiring people. I am going to... So it's also a job ad. <laughs> job ad. First of many. Um, I'm going to be a walking job ad. I am going to be an assistant professor in two departments, in biomedical engineering and chemical engineering. And I'm going to be working at Carnegie Mellon University, which is, I'm very excited about this school, actually. I really, I loved my interviews there. 
It's in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It is a relatively small school, packs a lot of power. So it's actually ranked number four in engineering in the U.S. overall. And I think uh, chemical engineering, I think it's like number 11 and the biomedical engineering department's in the top 25. But what I really like it, well, what I really think is interesting about Carnegie Mellon, uh, it's actually a merging of two different schools. So Carnegie uh, and Mellon. So there's a technical institute part about this and there's also the arts. So there are actually people out here who have no idea that Carnegie Mellon University has engineering because they know Carnegie Mellon University for its drama. Mm. I mean, people go here to learn about film and drama and art, and we have lots of Tony winners who are alum from Carnegie Mellon, yes. So it's really interesting to have both of those powerhouses here. And I think, you know, when I was thinking about the podcast, I thought, well, this is a fantastic place to be. Yeah, you're going to have to make other humanities friends. It's okay, I'm not going to be jealous. But... <laughs> Don't be jealous. I, I really just want them to. <laughs> I did not think about that. But I was really just thinking about the students and thinking about how, how cool it is and how I really hope that there's opportunities for people in the STEM fields to kind of engage in their arts, artistic side, mm. as well as people on the art side to kind of see the, the STEM um, but Carnegie Mellon is, is really cool. One of the things I really liked about my interviews that was also crazy making was that every building is connected to each other by a bridge. So you don't ever have I... to go outside. Oh, that's so cool. Is it because the weather's really bad there? Um, or are they just maybe... really practical? I think it might be both because okay. it's not, it, it does get cold and, but I guess not snow nearly as much as it might snow, say in Boston or or someplace for Ithaca, mm-hmm. where Ithaca should have everything connected, and they That's do not. Exactly what I was thinking. Like, come on. <laughs> also, like a covered escalator for going up the slope. But anyway. Ooh. Oh. <laughs> but instead, they just have those signs of how did the Cornell put it? Like, you know, do this at your own risk. And they're like, we're only going to clear one path in the winter, and that's yeah. your. For the thousands of students that have to make their way and staff who have to make their way up and down. But I think Carnegie Mellon is also really tightly compacted. And so I think some of it's just like architectural, like just the creativity of like, how do we get all these buildings to be connected to each other? And so that's really fun part about it. Uh, The undergrads told me it takes them like maybe two years to really figure out how to go everywhere and never go outside. Mm. So I naturally had guides through my interview process. And there would be times where we're on the third floor of one building, crossover, we're in the fourth floor of the next building. I have no idea. And then some floors don't, some buildings don't, uh, some stairwells don't go all the way up to the same level of each building. There are definitely a few times where we got a little confused, but that's fine. It it added to the character building of the, the interview process. I'm going and I'm excited about starting my lab, looking at macrophages for drug delivery and diagnostic purposes in cancer and um, wound healing and regeneration. So yeah. I have to get yeah. used to saying that and really streamlining it. <laughs> I guess one thing I was thinking about was back to when our friend Nadia first also got her tenure track job mm-hmm. and just all the sudden logistics her. that came into play when being a PI that suddenly you have to oh, oh, oh. know how to manage personnel. You have to also have project manager skills. Like how do you set up the physical layout of the lab? Mm-hmm. Like there's all these different skill sets that you have to 
suddenly develop. I was, I was going to say to backtrack a bit, I know our listeners were interested in hearing a bit about the the process. And maybe do you want to give a quick timeline of like, when did you apply for the job? When did you interview? What did that look like for people? <laughs> yeah. And it, I think this is timely because if you're in the next hiring cycle, you should be working like yesterday. Hmm. So, <laughs> job applications will open up. And I think this is similar to your process sign, but the job applications will typically typically open up starting in August. Um, and I've seen some application deadlines as early as September and as late as December 31st. Mm-hmm. Although even though there's a deadline, that doesn't mean they're not looking at those applications as they come in. And because they get so many applications, it's not in your best interest to wait too long. Mm-hmm. Um, is they may say, I've got eight great candidates I want to see. That's it. I don't need to look at the rest of them. Uh, just as an FYI. Mm-hmm. But I, so I started, I would say in the summer, really working on my research statement, which is like a list of projects that, and that I think I could do to really launch my lab and trying to give people a sense of what research I want to do. And I started, um, shopping it out with various professors. And I think that 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 process was painful because you start off and you're like, you get comments like, uh, this is horse poop. Really? Whoa, that's true. This is awful. I don't see anything remarkable about what you're trying to do. This is Whoa. not at all. And, and you know, like some of that's good. Like your first edits are never, I don't know anyone who truly genuinely has really good first edits. I think it's more about finding the right people to review who you trust and actually who have a really good sense of what other applications look like, because in terms of format, you want it to be consistent with my other people might see. Um, Mm -hmm. So in other words, when I was getting review comments, I would notice that I was getting different responses from someone say in microbiology or or um, molecular biology or immunology even in comparison to someone who was in engineering, even though like my research spans those um, three fields. Mm-hmm. And so when you're taking advice, you wanna take the advice from the person who probably has the most recent experience on being on a hiring committee um, in the actual department that you're interested in because the niches will vary by department. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was writing my research statement. I was getting, you know, letters of recommendation from people or kind of seeing like, or just at least telling people, hey, I want to apply. Um, are you willing to write a letter for me? And in some cases, that also meant, all right, I'm going to write this letter. I'm going to write a draft letter and give you, you know, give this to you or updating people on your life. So especially for people who were like, mentors in my graduate time where okay let me tell you what i've done in my postdoc you know things that you may not see because we're not together day to day um writing a teaching statement writing um what else was there you had a diversity statement for something i remember i had diversity statement writing that getting feedback on that um and then there's actually just applying and then writing down a list of schools or rather departments, you're not really applying to a school, but list of departments you wanna to apply to and researching them. And I would say this is the part where it really takes a lot of time because 
you do want to tailor your application to every school, mm-hmm. which means you need to read the website and you need to know what the faculty are doing. And it really shouldn't be something that you just put in a person's name and like, oh, this person does work that I do. You, you kind of have to know what the flavor of that place is and be able to articulate that in your research statement and in your cover letter in a very, in a meaningful way. Mm-hmm. And then, so that's just the part about writing the application. But um, I would say in my experience and kind of like the pool of experiences I have from people, it's stupid just to apply like on paper. You need to apply in person as well, What's which that- means it means that you should be reaching out to people at that school. You should be networking. You should be going to conferences. You should be getting your name out there and making people know who you are. Mm. You should be looking for advocates at those schools and you should really be trying to get a sense of like, what are they looking for? Because that also helps you write a more tailored um, application. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so that's really how you're going to get to, you know, advanced stages. So let's say you've done everything right. And then you, you submit your application and you hear back. So usually there's a Skype interview. And so that might be like 40 people or something. They're Skype interviewing. They ask you a series of questions. And then if you make it past the Skype interview, you go to the on-site interview. And that's like a two-day hellish process. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, where, you know, you're giving your chop talk, your, so your vision for your research, and you're giving your seminar, and then you go and talk to like 30 people over the course of two days. And, and every interaction is an interview. Mm-hmm. Time you're not interviewing, it's the time that you run to the bathroom. Mm-hmm. And uh, then you wait and hope you get a follow-up interview. Yeah. Yeah. I guess like with the process that you had told me about, like there's like the one additional interview because in the humanities, yeah. if there's a campus visit, usually it's done at that point. I didn't realize that there was a second time that you had really? to go back. Yeah. Huh. Oh, yeah. They they um, ask you to come back. Um so they've narrowed it down again and you come back and it and, and and schools do this differently. So it's not what happens on that second interview can vary. Some people hold off with some people don't have you meet the dean until you have your second interview. Um, or some people like they want to give you the job, but they just kind of like, so now let's do a housing tour or now let's have you seen more facilities and more people than you saw before? Let's see who your collaborators could be. Mm. So, and so they're also trying to do more selling for you. And most of the time, this is because they know that other schools are looking at you too. And so I think my hypothesis at least is that having this other, this next interview is another point to you, have you have more information Um and so sometimes that second interview is with an offer already. And other times it's kind of like, we really want to make an offer. We're just like kind of dotting our I's and crossing our T's a little bit more. Mm. But I don't, I think everyone usually does go on that second interview. And then, and then after that, there's an offer. <laughs> uh, it's like there's a verbal offer. And then, you know, then all the legalese starts to happen. And then there's a formal offer. Mm-hmm. And then, 
And then, and this is the part that I think is really insane because um, I was saying that I've learned more about what it takes to get a faculty position by applying than I ever really knew in the preceding years as a graduate student or a postdoc. Because I, throughout the process of writing my application, sending it out, and even going on the Skype interviews and then the on-site interviews, I kept evolving as a person, as an applicant, um, my research was evolving. I was starting to realize that the way I was saying things wasn't right or wasn't like helpful or beneficial for my, you know, how I presented myself. And I started to realize like, oh, I had this all, I mean, not completely wrong, but like wrong enough that, you know, wrong enough <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, that I like, wow, I, 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 my eyes are opening. And one of the interesting things that I think about now is like, I kind of got mad at people. Like, how come no one told me negotiation was the hardest part of this process? And so if you start, let's say like, like I was explaining this process, you started in June even, or let's just August, you started genuinely applying and harvesting in August and you start interviewing, let's say you start interviewing in January. From January for like three or four months, you're like intensely going on interviews every week or every other week. And um, you get an offer, you don't get to relax. You don't get to rest then. Like now you have to be the most alert you've ever been in your life because now these details matter. Mm -hmm. And you have to make sure that you get what you need to be successful and happy. And it's like this one little moment, a period of time where you're almost adversarial with the people you want to be colleagues with and love forever. Oh, that, yeah, that's a good way of putting you it. Know? <laughs> it's like this little moment it's like a little blip and it's weird because you spent the last few months being catered to and kind of like this is the best place you should be here it's amazing and it is it's not that it's not but then when the offer letter comes you kind of have to put on your different hat and you have to say like all right let's um, we were hugging before like stop well, let's not hug me right now you know like we're done making love let's think about <laughs> oh, interesting metaphor Liz I feel like this could go in a lot know. of very interesting directions right now I don't know I don't know I haven't gotten so this is the morning after and they were like oh okay well, let's think about how we want this to go forward next and it's like <laughs> but I I remember at this point just talking to people and and this is a point where like some of the people who had just been hired were super helpful like having friends you know, like no one, like there were people who just said like, oh yeah, this is so stressful for me. I got sick after, when I, once I was done negotiating and making my actual decision, I was sick. I slept for two weeks. I heard people say that they just like couldn't work and they, like they were just ineffective for like two weeks afterwards because it was so stressful or people went to the gym every day. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought like, yeah, this makes so much sense. I am so stressed. And I, would, and I had this vision that now that I'm doing interviews, I can finally get back to like being in lab and trying to finish some of the work I want to finish. And no, I was having phone calls on phone calls on phone calls, some of them with universities, some of them with advisors, because I wanted feedback on like what they were telling me and like what I should do. And then trying to decide which one's right or not. And like, just having your whole world view about the thing you just spent months deciding that this is what I want. Do I want that? Mm -hmm. That was really hard. And then advocating for yourself. 
but like yeah. you're waiting for people's response to be fast enough so you can get back to the to the other side and then like there's excruciating agony of waiting for their responses and just want then also second guessing yourself that if did you ask too much did you ask too little or and it's something that didn't occur to me until i started asking for things but how do they view me for asking and yeah. it's something they're going to hold on to after this process is i would argue i would posit as a thesis that some of this is gendered oh definitely and there's a lot of politics yeah, and I remember personally feeling very um, like I'm doing my research, I'm doing everything well, um, <laughs> but also feeling like I'm not sure I can say what they just told me, what my advisors just told me to say. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know, I don't yeah. know if I have the same power. Um, yeah, and then I think the other part is is um. That I think I came out of here a little bit stronger in the sense that I had to realize I have to take my own advice and that like part of being a professor now is that I am actually driving my, the ship now and there is a such thing as having too much advice that can be hard when you are coming from the position of you're, you're taking your mentor's advice taking your mentor's advice has helped you get to the point where you are right now and you're kind of putting on your, you're growing up and realizing that I have to, but I am still the person who's interacted with the people and know the people. And I have to kind of work on my own sense of judgment and, and the things that I need to know. And, um, you know, every, because this process is so individual, I think you get so many unique responses to solving the same problem mm-hmm that all worked out for them. So they're all like very plausible solutions, but that doesn't mean it's the one that works for you. Mm-hmm. And it's hard when you're trying to optimize um, when maybe you can't actually optimize that way. Mm-hmm. But you really want to, and we were in, in a way we were trained to because our success, it was really a good strategy to do that. And so now I think there's this, this thing where I thought, okay, but what do I know? What do I want? What do I see as my future? And and then making decisions on that. And also not necessarily saying whose judgment I trust better, because I don't that's not true, but it's sort of really having to pick and choose. Um, and then being okay with your results. And then then I had to realize it's also about keeping your mentors relationships. So it's not just about when you get to that new institution. Um, making sure that your relationships are intact there. But when you ask for advice from people, you know, people kind of want, people think that they're doing it the right way and they want you to take their advice. And now you're in a way saying, well, now I'm my own person and I, I'm going to do things my way. And I know that you think this is risky or hard, but I'm going to do this. And so finding a way to do that and still maintain your relationships and, you know, keeping an open eye, I think that's challenging. Mm-hmm. Like, it's such a transitional moment professionally, but also personally in terms of all these relationships. And I have to say, I think one thing that when you're talking about how the dynamic of negotiating is very gendered, and as I said, also racialized, like, I can't help but think that there's so much, like, people are trying to put more and more advice out there about d- this process, but sometimes like there's there's such a way that it's there's such a unequal burden and also all the things of like well 
say that women academics are making less because they don't negotiate well enough. And then you, as a woman academic who's about to have a job, is like, oh my God, I am under so much pressure now. And if I don't do it well now, then it's going to reflect on me forever. Or at least that's how I felt. Um, or I was thinking about there's this infamous case like a number of years ago where this one woman negotiated too hard and she had her job offer rescinded. Yeah, there's there's a lot of pressure that um, people put on you that you, you read an article about women not trying hard enough and it makes you want to be like, oh, I'm not going to be that person. And I think it influences how you walk into the room or walk into the space. So that's one thing. But there's this other thing that even if you really were just like, I am doing like my best negotiation, I practiced beforehand, I got lots of advice, I got numbers that are kind of commiserate with what um, people like at my stage or should expect, you know, so you have the information. I still think that there are ways that um, as and we were kind of having this conversation before we started the podcast, but this episode, I mean, um, but I can't make people separate the fact that I'm black and a woman from what I do and who I am, like and what my worth is. And that's, so that's always something that's there. Um, and it's really hard to ever try to suss out which part is responding to which thing mm. or how people perceive me or how I respond or, or not respond. Um, yeah. And I think that, uh, you know, that because there's, I don't know what I'm going to say next, but, but negotiation was interesting. It kind of opened my eyes. And I think there are still things that I, I want to sit on longer before I really say them. Definitely on the podcast. Makes sense. No, I, I hear you. <laughs> I mean, they do. it's like everyone knows this podcast exists now. Like, what if our colleagues, my colleagues, your colleagues, former, future listening right now? And we don't, which, and we like that you're listening, but yeah, <laughs> we want you to continue to be our colleagues. No, I just, I just think it's really interesting. And um, having gone through it now, I have a, and I have a different perspective on the process that, uh, yeah, I, I am really going to be thinking about a lot. <laughs> and you also said earlier how now that you've gotten the job, you're feeling like you're late to everything. Yeah. So part of this is because um, my I finished interviewing, let's say I finished interviewing in May. Like I saw, okay, I signed the offer in May and my start date was in August. And when you think about setting up your lab, so it's like, make a website, um, think of your projects you wanna do. What, how, how are you going to recruit students? Um, what, do you, what are the things you need in your lab to do first? Um, what grants do you wanna apply first for? What projects are those going to be for? Which ones are you most qualified for? Um, if you're like me, you're also asking yourself, all right, how am I going to wrap up these papers from my postdoc? Um, how am I going to prioritize that work? Um, how am I going to have this conversation about what I'm going to take with me and not take with me with my advisor, right? That's another relationship you have to really manage well. Um, 
And so when you think about all that work, and mind you, I haven't even mentioned logistics of moving. Yeah. Like, where am I going to live? Uh, <laughs> yeah, basic things like that. Oh, God. Yeah. One of the most stressful questions for me all the time. Like, after the yeah. how excited you are is the have you found a place to live yet? <laughs> but anyway. Yeah. So it's, it, it's a lot. And I think once I started writing down and thinking about the things, and I'll also admit part of this was talking to um, other professors and everyone has different, there's a, there's a wide range, but um, I think one of the stressful things is when you think about what your startup package is, like how much money you get with the idea that that money is designed to, um, help you start your lab and apply for grants and be successful so that you can, you can sustain your own lab. Uh, a lot of PIs have, that's really terrifying because a lot of grants are kind of designed that you should be spending that money within three years. Mm. So you need to have grants in three years. And I know people like they, you know, you can apply for like 20 grants and get no funding. Mm-hmm. you know it's really hard to get your first funding and so nobody wants to run out of money and so you're automatically you're always thinking about like writing grants or or how am I going to sustain my future and thinking about what the timeline that is so you you can write a grant but because of like what, how long the review process takes and hearing back and if you need extra comments it can be a year before you actually get that money in your pocket, in your lab account. Mm -hmm. So when you start like stretching out the time and thinking about like, what do I need to do now to be successful, to get funding, to increase my chances of having funding, that makes a lot of people who are starting in their faculty positions, especially in STEM at least, feel like they should be starting now. Yeah. And so I know people where it's, hard for them to actually celebrate the win of getting faculty. You know, you're a part of that 3% number of PhDs who actually make it to the ivory tower and you get the offer and it's like, oh, can't rest now, gotta negotiate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and a lot of that negotiation makes you think about the numbers a lot and about the space and all of the stuff. And the more you think about that, the more you think, oh, wow. I need to start working now. <laughs> and so, so people rarely feel like they have time to actually celebrate the win because they kind of start moving on and start thinking forward already. Mm-hmm. On, like, what do I need to do to start my lab? And, and also if you're teaching, it's like, are you teaching, teaching an older class or a new class? Do you have material? Mm-hmm. So that's also the transition period is also like, I need to develop a course. And so you start trying to plan for that and you feel like you have to literally start the day you sign your offer. And it was funny because I was talking with a friend who had just accepted the position in Arkansas. Uh, congrats to Dr. Young Hae Song. And, <laughs> and I remember saying, you have to celebrate, you have to enjoy this moment. And you know, two, three weeks later, I accepted my offer and I, like, I was like, I am so stressed right now. <laughs> And then she was like, yeah, yeah, you're judging me. <laughs> but pressure is real. And I, I guess it's important to say that to have people remember that you still have to take your time. Do make sure you celebrate. And take a break. <laughs>
Thanks for listening to part one of this two-part series where I interview Liz about her new job. Stay tuned for part two, all about the messy, dirty parts of getting a new job, which is talking about family and relationships. Dating.